0: Savior of the world, I use the wrong color for the word, so you can see it, what does that mean, what does that mean to us, Savior of the world, we know that this man is the Savior of the world, the townspeople said, when we hear those words, what do we think of, it? certainly everyone that is a Christian, and even many who are not Christians are familiar with this term, Savior of the world, so what does it mean, this is what it meant back then, this is an actual writing found chiseled on some ruins near the Middle East. The most divine Jesus we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new art. Jesus, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection, In giving to us Jesus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become God manifest, Jesus has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Jesus has been for the whole world, the beginning of the good news concerning him. Sounds familiar, right? It echoes of the angel in Luke, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We might use a few different words here and there, but the general understanding of Savior of the world certainly seems to be the same for us now as it was for the people back then. Except here's the interesting thing. This piece of writing from 6 BC was actually found on a government building and Jesus was not the name. This is actually what this piece of writing said. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things, for when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new arm. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war, and has set all things in order, and whereas having become God manifest, Caesar Augustus has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of the good news concerning him. We have a tendency to use words to define our faith that perhaps have lost their original meaning. Words that we use were never the intended meanings in the first place. And so now these words lost in translation, as many may be. Lost in the translation of centuries of Christian culture that has slowly shifted away from following the radical Jesus we find in the Gospels. Lost in the translation of centuries of Christian culture that has slowly domesticated the Lion of Judah, which the Messiah has often been called. These words lost in the translation of assuming that all of our favorite Christian words are unique to our faith, and so they must have obvious meanings. So these words lost in translation perhaps no longer challenge us, no longer convict us, inspire us, fill us with awe and dread, no longer cause us to fall on the ground in worship us to allow our lives to be radically reordered by the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. So I think if maybe we would remember how powerful these words are, to relearn what they originally meant, maybe come to terms with how Jesus Christ was using them, it might change everything. For we would either step with hope in great expectation and maybe a little fear into a path of having our entire lives transformed, or we would probably walk away from all this thing we call Christianity, muttering something like the disciples did, then who can be saved? When they were confronted with the total seeming <coughs> contrariness of the good news of the kingdom of God. See, when Jesus came and spoke words like kingdom, faith, savior. Lord, gospel, he was not introducing new words to the world. It's so interesting how Christians sometimes think all of our language was invented 2,000 years ago. And that Jesus showed up and he told us gospel and Savior and Lord. No, no. He was not speaking in a vacuum of time and space. He was using words that were commonly used to define the human world, and he was changing their meanings. And he was using them to point to the divine world. He was asking people that he lived among men, and he's asking all of us now, to rethink reality. Reimagine life. He's asking us to believe in the possibility of full redemption and not settle for anything left. Now, Haw and Claiborne do an amazing job of just going through some of these words and how they were being used and then how Jesus shifted them. I'm going to draw on their scholarship just for this next bit as we look at some of these words. So, when Jesus came, the word kingdom meant the Roman Empire. Jesus used it to define the kingdom of God. Ruling the Roman Empire was the all-powerful Caesar. Ruling the kingdom of God was the all-loving Yahweh. Now just pause for a second. Jesus came to the most powerful nation on earth and used their language and said, let me tell you what those words should really mean for you. I wonder what he would use for words if he came today to the most powerful nation on earth. And how that would really challenge and convict a lot of us. When Jesus came, gospel was the good news of the empire. See, when wars were won or heirs to the throne were born, messengers would literally be sent out across the empire with the gospel. The gospel. The good news. Well, when Jesus came, he said, no, the gospel is the good news. Is that the kingdom of God is open to all who believe. Son of God, when Jesus came, was a popular title for kings and emperors. A popular title. Alexander the Great used it. Alexander the Great also called himself King of Kings. Where have we heard that term before? Augustus used Son of God. Jesus was often called the Son of God, but interestingly enough, he mostly referred to himself as the Son of Man, not Son of God. You know who called him the Son of God? Satan. (coughs) tempting him in the desert. Read it closely. He calls him the Son of God, and then he gives him three temptations. And each temptation, as John Yoder points out, were options that human kings would use. That should tell us a lot, shouldn't it? That Jesus rejected all of them. <coughs> now, from our Christian studies, many of us have heard the term ecclesia, means church. We even talked about this when we, in, when we were in 1 Corinthians. But before there were any Christian churches, the word existed, and it described a public assembly within the Roman Empire. Stegman suggests that it was like a town meeting where even citizenship was bestowed on people. So, Howard Brook and Gwyther explain that for the Christians, the word emphasizes that the followers of Jesus were called to participate in their world as local communities of an alternative society to the Roman imperial order. That's what a church was then churches today look like an alternative society to the American order? I don't know. Now I know I know what we've done to make ourselves feel better about that. We've thought these words were unique to the gospel and so oh, he couldn't possibly be talking about our government. We're not it. Kingdom? With kings? No, well, but he came 2,000 years ago. If he didn't stamp human order then with his approval, why would he stamp human order now with his approval? Let's not be so self-centered that we think we've come so far from this kingdom 2,000 years later. I wonder if Cana looks like an alternative society to the American order. I wonder if my own life does. Likewise, many of us have heard this term, perusia, oh, the second coming of Christ. But then it literally meant presence, and it, retur- and it referred to the return of Caesar to another part of his empire to visit that he hadn't been to in a while. Faith. Faith was a term then meant loyalty to, trust, and hope in the Roman Empire. Jesus spoke of faith as having loyalty for and trust and hope in Him. Sometimes I I think the way we Christians get all worked up about what our government is doing or not doing or blah 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 or should be doing blah blah. It's like we have so much faith that our government is taking care of us and should take care of us and, and, and is where we put our faith that the American way, uh, no. There has never been a greater empire than Rome, ever, as much as we'd like to think we are. Rome was the greatest and Jesus said, that's not good enough. Don't have faith in the Roman Empire. Have faith in me. Lord was the name of the supreme ruler of Rome. Lord was another title for Jesus. Emmanuel was a title claimed by Antiochus IV and other rulers and meant the manifestation of the presence and will of the gods. In Hebrew, It means God with us and was the name given to Jesus by the angel announcing his birth. Worship was an act of submission before a ruler or emperor. For Jesus, it is what the wise men did when he was born. Bowed before him in praise and adoration. Are you beginning to get a sense of how brilliantly radical Jesus was? You can almost Hear the divine sarcasm dripping from his mouth. Listen, you have a kingdom. I have a kingdom. Let me tell you about it. You have good news. No, no, let me tell you about my good news. It's amazing, really. Wonder. Wonder. Have we lost the wonder? Wonder. Claim to trust and believe in a savior of the world, and we lost the wonder of that. Who is our savior? Jesus redefined the human experience. We say human justice, and and that's what exactly what we want justice. Jesus said justice, and he meant divine mercy. We say human fairness, and we want fairness. Jesus speaks fairness and means divine grace. We say to each his own, and Jesus says the cross. We say transactions, and Jesus says love. We want a kingdom, and Jesus offers us home. Home, where we were made to live in God's kingdom. And this is ultimately the story of the woman at the well, We've been studying for nine weeks. We're ending this morning. This story is not some morality tale in which she is caught going to bad wells, and Jesus wants her to go to good wells. No, it's about any well that is not His well is not the way. No matter how good it is or how bad it. Her first five marriages, as far as we know, were all legal. So there was nothing morally wrong with them. But they were never going to satisfy her. And if the so-called good ones can't satisfy, of course the bad ones can't either. Jesus did not come and ask this woman to make her way better. He does not ask us to make our way better. He asks us to leave our ways both good and bad and follow him out of our kingdoms and into his Jesus did not come here and ask us to pray that our kingdoms would be better that our kingdoms would be more Christ-like that our leaders would be more moral no, he came and simply said listen You don't belong to those kingdoms. You belong to me. No matter how good you think your kingdoms are, you were not made for them. That's why scripture uses words like sojourners and pilgrims. Jesus said, I am the one who loves you come to me, trust me, follow me. Your emperor doesn't love you. Your president doesn't love you. Your kingdom can't save you, but I can. He is the savior of the world, not because he intends to Christianize our kingdoms, no matter how nice that might sound to us Christians and how comforting it might be. No. Because he stands alone and he invites us to live in his kingdom. If you had known who it was that speaks to you, you would have asked him for a drink of water and he would have given you living water. As long as we hold on to our kingdom our ways, no matter how good they seem, no matter how much they seem to work, the life we are all really seeking will remain elusive. He offers us a kingdom in which the king loves us unconditionally and asks only one thing about us: to love others the same way. Do we trust that? Can we trust that? You know, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many are involved in, in a certain way of eating? I don't like the term diet, but I am. How many of us have ever done cleanses? Again, don't raise your hand. Cleanses, dieting, being healthy, right? So I was thinking about this week as I was thinking about saving the world and can we trust? This God we claim to believe in. So worldwide, the dieting industry, the cleansing industry, the eating healthy industry, the exercise industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Right? And so what we do, what I do, I do, I, you know, ever since I turned 50, I'm like 80% of what I put in my body is fruits and vegetables. I have some vices that I put in my body. Beer and wine, unfortunately, I can't, can't get rid of yet, but that'll come someday. Um, so we listen to authorities telling us this is what's good for you. We believe it. We trust it because we do it. Follow it faithfully. We trust that this is best for our lives and we do it faithfully. do it. And we're trusting other human beings. I saw a bumper sticker yesterday that I actually laughed at. because There are other <laughs> bumper stickers, and you know how I feel about bumper stickers. It was worship the creator, not the creation. So I laughed. I was like, okay, yeah, that's good, buddy. And then, But then today, afterwards, not today, I'm thinking of it right now, but later in day I was thinking, you know what? That's, that's what I'm talking about. We trust Creation to tell us how to live our lives. We trust creation. We spend our money showing our trust of creation. Sometimes they're right. I've lost quite a bit of weight. I feel pretty good the way I'm eating now, how much exercise I'm doing. Sometimes they're wrong. Remember back in the 80s? Tony eggs, they're evil. Now all of a sudden eggs are great, them. We trust other humans to tell us what's best for us. But the savior of the world says, follow me. Forgive our enemies. (coughs) Love others unconditionally. That's not a billion dollar industry. In fact that industry, according to US News and World Report, is dying every day as millennials flee the church faster than they can. Now, maybe that's because not a lot of churches are telling people to love each other, but my guess is that's not entirely true. My guess is no one likes to love others unconditionally. We'd rather spend billions making ourselves better because other creation tells us to than spend billions following the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. If you had known who it was I was talking to you, just ask me for a drink. This woman trusted he was the savior of the world. Remember we saw this last week? That metaphor, the bucket that she had brought for yet another drink, she left there to run back to town. Her life was changed. And in living out that change, the people from her town were drawn to Christ and they too came to trust He was the Savior of the world and their lives were changed. I'm confident if we can trust that Jesus is the Savior of the world, our lives too will be changed. And when we live that change out, how many more will be drawn to this Christ who loves us as no other human Savior could ever, ever love us. Amen. Thank you.